man and woman are made to be so much better than we are. The Bible's words for this are words that can seem intimidating, words like godliness and holiness, and they are very challenging words, and godliness is a challenge. And it would be easy to preach this psalm in a way that is very challenging, in a way that can set before us uh, the people that we ought to be. And yet to do so would be to um, miss the point of the psalm. It would ignore the great burst of celebration in the first phrase. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And why does this portrait that seems so intimidating bring forth this burst of praise? This is what we are to be like. Think how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let us make man in our image. In the likeness, in his likeness, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then what happened? Chaos and the vandalization of the image of God in man. And the portrait was ruined. But here, here we've seen, and it's not just the context of the opening phrase, but the context of these mirror image psalms, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112, and how they mirror each other at so many points. Here's this portrait of God. And wow, here's a portrait of a man. And the portrait of the man and the portrait of God mirror each other. The image of God is being recaptured and restored in mankind. Hallelujah! Isn't that amazing? What a wonderful thing. What an astonishing thing. And that's part of his excitement. You see, godliness is not simply our challenge. It's our privilege. And yet in our world, it's a really devalued currency. It's scorned. It's seen as worthless. You're seen as an oddity when you seek to be holy or godly or a Christian. Uh, one writer said, Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal and righteousness seem odd. And so here in the, in the book of Psalms, as we're moving towards the, the end of the journey, as we're moving towards the climax of everything being made new, the psalmist encourages us to keep going. It is very similar in some ways to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 starts with blessed is the man and finishes with the wicked perishing. Psalm 112, blessed is the man and finishes with the wicked perishing. And so, having looked at it last week, Psalm 1, here we are much further on in the book of Psalms and as we're coming near the journey, it's as if whoever put the book of Psalms together said, now we need an echo of Psalm 1 to keep the people going on this pathway when the world around them says, would you ever pipe down? Would you leave it alone? 
and would you give our heads peace. Take your Christianity, your godliness, and live it in the corner where we can't see it. And so, here's our encouragement this evening. And there's uh, three things uh, to see. First of all, there's the, the conditions godliness requires. There's the conditions that godliness requires. And we see this set out for us in verse 1. And we mustn't lose sight of this great celebratory opening. And I'm using the word conditions with a, a, I suppose I'm not terribly keen on it, but I couldn't think of a better word. But it starts with this great burst of celebration. But then it goes on to say, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Blessed. Blessed, this word means happy. It means um, experiencing joy. It means in the right place. Things are the way they ought to be. The man who does this is in a good place. The world says you're in an odd place. The writer here says you're in a good place. And as we look at it, uh, we see that what is this good place made up of? It's made up of three things. It's made up of a right relationship to God. A right relationship. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who fears the Lord. And remember what we've been noting, uh, and we've been noting it very briefly, um, both this morning and last week, that this fear of the Lord is a two-sided coin. It's made up of awe at the majestic splendor of the Creator God, who is high and holy and powerful. And then it is made up of delight, uh, delight and love at this God who would redeem us. And there is, as we said um, earlier, there's this rejoicing and trembling. Uh, there's this mixture of awe and delight that come together in the fear of the Lord. It's not simply that we've seen the Creator God, but we know Him as our Savior. There's a right relationship. And you see it summed up in this word, Lord. It doesn't simply say, He who fears God. He knows God, as it were, on first-name terms. He has entered into saving relationship with God. And so, the conditions of, that bring about godliness start off not with our effort, but with this right relationship with God. And if you're watching or you're here this evening and you're not yet in a right relationship with God, remember how Psalm 111 finished. The fear of the Lord. This right relationship with God is the beginning of wisdom. That's where you need to begin. You need to come into a right relationship with God. You need to acknowledge Him as your Creator, as the King who made everything, to whom you owe everything, and yet you have defied him and denied him and you need him to be your savior and astonishingly he offers to do that and so if you're not trusting in Christ to be your savior that's what you need to do to start right this evening to enter into a right relationship with God but then there's also a right attitude to godliness a right attitude to godliness Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. Who finds great delight in his commands. And as you look at those lines, fear of the Lord, 
and great delight are parallel phrases. And you see, that, that, that helps us understand what I've been saying about the fear of the Lord. It's not simply a, a trembling you know, at the power of God. There's a delight in it. That God is my Father. Oh, that's fantastic. And we tremble in awe and amazement and delight. And there's a right attitude to God and to godliness. You know, and you see, if we have, if we've got question marks, if we've got a sneaking suspicion about God's goodness, then we're not going to delight in Him. We're not going to delight in His ways. And we're not going to delight in His Word. And whenever it talks about delighting in His commands, it doesn't just mean the do this, don't do that command. It's just a a word that sums up all of God's Word to us. All of God's Word. And you see, there's two kinds of Christian. Well, there's lots of kinds of Christian, but two with this regard. There are those who aren't convinced of God's goodness who are suspicious of God's actions. And then there are those who are convinced of God's goodness, even though they don't understand all His actions, all the things that happen in their lives. And we're never going to delight in God. We're not going to delight in godliness if we, have a, if we harbor a suspicion about God's goodness. And the way to solve that suspicion is to go to the cross and to look at the cross and to see the things that we saw last week in Psalm 111, the greatness of God, the tenderness of God, the commitment of God, that that great God in such love did that for us. He provided redemption because He had promised He would. That helps us to have a right attitude as we gaze at the cross and we start to delight more and more in who this God is and what He says. And then that means that we are more inclined to dive headfirst into being like this God because we have no reservations about Him. If we've got reservations, you don't want to be like somebody you've got reservations about. And so we need a right attitude. And if we've been struggling with those suspicions, one of the things is to look to the cross and the other thing is to seek forgiveness. Say, I'm sorry, forgive me. How could I doubt your commitment and your love and your goodness when I look at the cross? And then we need to have a right obedience. A right obedience. The psalmist finds great delight in God's commands. And this delight is not merely intellectual. It finds practical effect. It has practical consequences. And the, the psalmist is putting into action what he's learning. The commands delight him. And he says, right, have that one done, what am I to do next? Not because it's a, a doing, doing, doing mindset, but because, as we'll see, these, these are echoes. God's commands are echoes of his own character. And it's about us growing in likeness to him. So, the blessings that come in Psalm 112 that we're going to look at in a moment come to those who are in a right relationship, who have a right attitude, and who have a right obedience. It's a life of repentance and trust.
and so it's helpful for us to take a temperature check for ourselves. How are we in a right relationship? Do we have a right attitude? Have we a right obedience? And if we find that our temperature, our spiritual temperature has dipped, the thing to do is not to try and ratchet up our own temperature somehow, to try harder. The thing to do to improve, as it were, the conditions for godliness in Psalm 112, verse 1, is to go to Psalm 111 and to fix our gaze on the God who's there and to see His greatness and His tender care and His faithfulness and to gaze at that and to praise Him for that. And that will help us in a relationship. It'll fuel a right attitude and it will give us the desire to want to listen and walk in his ways. So the conditions, really the conditions in which godliness grows. Secondly then, the resemblance godliness brings. The resemblance godliness brings. Now remember, the psalmist here started off at hallelujah. He's, he's wanting to show us that this is a magnificent thing that we are engaged in. We are engaged in nothing less than the restoration of a masterpiece. God created man in his image. And that has been vandalized by the work of Satan and by our own uh, sinfulness. And God hasn't given up. And he has come to restore the image of God in man. And you see it set out wonderfully in the parallels in these two Psalms. Psalm 111 and 112. Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful illustration of this. He says, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are like the sun and the moon. They, they go together. And the sun shines. And what does the moon do? Well, it reflects the sun's brilliance. And so it is with God and man. God shines and we, like the moon, reflect his brilliance. Here is God and the godly. And yet, we are not God and never will be God. We are finite and we are fragile and we are frail. And he is infinite and majestic and holy. But yet, as one writer is this lovely description, he says, The dewdrop with its little rainbow has a miniature of the great ark that spans the earth and rises into the heavens. We're never going to be God, but we're like the little rainbow formed by a dewdrop. And it's a little miniature of that great rainbow that we'll see crossing uh, the sky. We're that little miniature. And so it is with us. But before we get to the picture of us, there's something that, that arises as we read the psalm. And as we read the psalm, and as we see the parallels between God in Psalm 111 and us in Psalm 112, we read things like in verse 3 of 111, His righteousness endures forever. In verse 3 of 112, And His righteousness 
meaning the godly man or the godly woman, his righteousness endures forever. I think, wow, isn't that lovely? And we'll come to that in a moment. And then we read, For the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Verse 4, Psalm 111. Verse 4, Psalm 112. And it's speaking about uh, the, the godly in verse 4. And it says, For the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. And it speaks, it speaks in the, the language of God about man. And some writers have um, balked at saying that this is man that is being spoken of here. That this language, in fact that language gracious and compassionate, is used in Scripture only of God. The one place where there's a question mark is this psalm. And so some writers said, no, no, no. Here is God stepping into the psalm. They don't want to, to take what's used of God and apply it fully to the godly man or woman. And they're trying to safeguard God. But I think the answer is deeper and richer than that. The answer to the question, who is the godly man? Before the answer to that question is you or me, the answer is somebody else. And as we think on this second point about the resemblance godliness brings, we want to think first of all of the one who resembles us. The one who resembles us. Before it's true of you and me, it's true of Jesus. He is the one. And that's why the, the, the new NIV has made this psalm all-inclusive of male and female, and it's put in they and there and all the rest of it. And it's true of male and female Christians, that's true. But what that does is it obscures that there is a He is. He will be remembered for. He will have known for. He is righteous. He is compassionate. His righteousness endures forever. There is an individual in mind. And who is it? Who is the one in the darkness? Who is in the darkness of verse 4? And light is going to dawn on him, for he is gracious and compassionate. Who is that? Well, it is God. Those commentators are right when they say this language is only used of God. Yes, it is. But it's God come in human form. It's God the Son, what the psalmist is reaching for the edge of and can't quite visualize. We, the Holy Spirit who inspired the psalm, knows what's coming. And we who live on this side of the cross can see, ah, before this is a portrait of me, this is a portrait of God who became man. And before we begin to resemble God, God resembled us. And He came and he was the upright and gracious and compassionate one. And he was the righteous man who lived the righteous life that God demanded of me and you and that we couldn't live. And hallelujah, there is a righteous man. There is a gracious man. There is a compassionate man. There is an upright man. The very thing that God requires, God steps in and lives and provides for you and me. Hallelujah indeed. And we see something that the psalmist didn't. 
that the God of Psalm 111 would become the man of Psalm 112 so that we who really belong in verse 10 of Psalm 112, the wicked who will melt away and perish, that we could be lifted up and seated as princes on the thrones of heaven, as Psalm 113 puts it. All because of the God who became man. And so as we read Psalm 112, before we are amazed at the resemblance of us to God, we ought to be amazed at the resemblance of God to us and that He would step in and not just take on and live the life that we had or that we ought to have lived, but that He paid the price that we ought to have paid and He resembled us in our sin, not because He sinned, but because He bore our sins in His body on the tree. And so before, before we see ourselves, we have to see the one who came to resemble us. But secondly, you know, and that, 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 that encourages us, does it not? This is the price with which our growth in godliness was purchased. And it encourages us to, to keep going. But, but secondly, and under this point, we see that we grow in resemblance to him. He came in resemblance to us, and we grow in resemblance to Him. And throughout the psalm, there is this wonderful intertwining. Intertwining of blessing and character. In Psalm 111, there was an intertwining of God, God's works and God's person, God's character. In Psalm 112, there's an intertwining of God working blessing in our lives and working character in our lives. And just to note, bullet points really, of what the psalm says, and I explored this week, we grow to resemble him. And the psalm sets it out in a number of ways. We are marked by righteousness. We are marked by righteousness. Seven times in the psalm, the words upright and righteous and just or justice appear. You can see the parallel between um, Psalm 111, verse 3, His righteousness endures forever. And verse 3, our righteousness endures forever. The godly man, the godly woman's righteousness endures forever. This is wonderful. We were born sinners. And God is righteous and holy. But something amazing is happening in your life if you've asked Jesus to be your Savior. You're rescued from the penalty of sin, but you're also rescued from the power of sin. And God is starting to change you. And you become more and more upright and righteous and godly. That's what the psalm is saying. We have this progress in sanctification. How does it happen? As we delight in God, as we delight in His Word, and as we obey His Word. And God changes us, and He makes us righteous. And yes, this is a challenge to us. But boy, isn't it an encouragement. These are things that God is doing. He is making us like Him. But let's take that challenge, and let's just ask ourselves, is there a righteousness in our dealings 
the people we work with, uh, the people we're friends with, with our family, with the government, with those in authority, wherever that might be, whether it's in school or work or wherever, is there an uprightness to our dealings with family, friends, and neighbours? In those nobody-sees moments, and in those everybody's-doing-it moments, we are to be marked by righteousness. And as we delight in God and remember that He does see, and He's not doing it. And Christ had to go to the cross because people do it. We will become increasingly marked by righteousness. But what a transformation is happening. And then marked by compassion. Look at verse 4 in both Psalms. Verse 4 of 111, The Lord is gracious and compassionate. 112, verse 4, the second line. Gracious and compassionate and righteous. The gracious and compassionate and righteous man. And here's something lovely. Those who have received mercy become merciful. And yes, it's a challenge. We have the parable of the unmerciful servant who has excused a reasonable debt. But then he goes out and there's a man who owes him a much smaller debt. In fact, no, he's, he's excused a colossal debt. He's excused millions. And then there's a man who owes him hundreds. And he throttles him and has to be dragged off him. And how inappropriate it is for those who have received mercy to not be marked by compassion. But what a lovely thing. Our world is marked by a harshness. Our world is marked by a, a holding of grudges. And our world has mottos like, be kind. And God says, I'll work something in you so that you stand out and so that you be the type of people the world needs. And yes, there's a challenge. And we're to work in what God is. Uh, we're to work out in our lives what God is working in. But this is what He's working in. His character is, as it were, bleeding into our character and transforming it. Marked by compassion, marked by generosity. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, He provides food to those who fear Him. Psalm 111, Psalm 112. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely. Verse 9, They have scattered freely their gifts to the poor. God is generous, and we His people are to be marked by a generosity. And we can be. Why? Because our God provides what we need. And I think each of these comes to us with its particular challenge. And maybe we feel one more than others, but this is one that I feel. Um, am I generous with my time, generous with my money? Here's a, a challenge for us, that we are marked by generosity, see that, so that people can see something of our God in us. And then there's a last, a last resemblance here. I just want to, 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 to note Marked by constancy. Marked by constancy. You know, we live in a world where people can be all over the place and up and down and, and dependable and un, undependable. And something God says about himself in verse 5. He's the God who remembers his covenant forever. And what are we told about the righteous man? 
He is one who conducts his affairs with justice. It's the parallel line. And it's saying there's a God who's constant. And here's a man whose who's dealings with people are constant. He is trustworthy. You can count on him, the godly man or the godly woman. And so here's something that God is working into our lives and that we can be asking for and praying for and thankful for. There's a resemblance that God is working in. And, and maybe as you look back over your life, you can see changes in those areas where God has been changing you. And we should be thankful for this resemblance that godliness is bringing to you. It is our privilege and it is our challenge. And again, the writer Alexander McLaren, who had the lovely image of the dewdrop and the rainbow, has another one he speaks of as the poor cottage, the poor man's cottage catches the rays of the sunlight and reflects the brightness of the sun back, so our poor lives reflect something of the glory of God. What a, what a blessing. What a, an encouragement. And then the third point, the blessing godliness enjoys. The resemblance godliness brings and the blessing godliness enjoys as if, as if the resemblance wasn't a big enough blessing. There's more as you read through it. It's not just our character that God uh, changes, but there's line upon line of blessing. And again, we can only throw these out as bullet points. There's the blessing that God gives of covenant faithfulness. The blessing of covenant faithfulness. Look at verse 2. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. That's an echo of God's promise to Abraham that he would be a God to him and his descendants after him. It's an echo of the covenant made with the Israelites at Sinai that God would show kindness to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. What a blessing. A God who is faithful to his people, not just to you, but to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And we look at the state of the world and we think, what sort of a world will it be to bring children into? Well, it's a world with the God who's bound himself in promise to his people and to their children and their children's children. A God who wraps his love in a promise and seals it with an oath so that we know he's serious. The blessing of covenant faith and the blessing of God's provision. Godliness experiences the blessing of God's provision. Verse 3, it speaks of wealth and riches are in their houses. And this is using Old Testament language to show the picture of God's blessing on his people. It was often in terms of physical riches in the Old Testament and things going well for them in their, uh, in their daily lives, in material ways. And all of that was a picture of a God who would provide blessing in all sorts of ways. God's provision in the midst of everything. And it's not that they earned it. It's that God was giving it. God was showering down all that was needed 
on them. And He knows what you need. And He promises to provide. And as He sees us seeking to resemble His beloved Son, how do you think the Father feels towards His children who are trying to resemble His beloved Son? I think He'll be filled with delight. And Jesus speaks of receiving a good measure pressed down and flowing over as we seek to, to live for our God. We have a generous God and we enjoy His generosity. Another blessing is the blessing of stability that godliness imparts. The blessing of stability. Look at verse 4. Even in darkness, light dawns uh, for the upright. Verse 6. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. Verse 7, they will have no fear at bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. It's not saying that we have no bad news. It's not saying that darkness never comes. It's saying that there's always hope. It's saying that there's always stability. It's saying that there is a peace that comes to us when we fix our gaze on God. And we see his power, and we see his care, and we see his constancy. We can have confidence amidst the storms of life. Again, this lovely older preacher, Alexander McLaren, let me give you some lines from him. Lives rooted in God are never uprooted. The one fixed point amidst the whirl of things is the uttered word of God. Therefore, the heart that builds there builds safely. If you build yourself on the Word of God, you're building safely. He who has learned to lean on Jehovah will have his heart steadfast. Oh, there's a stability that comes to those who are gazing at God and God is working a, a resemblance of godliness in them. And then there is the blessing of future triumph. Verses 8 and 9. The world might scoff at us and ridicule us, but we read in verse 8, in the end they will look in triumph on their foes. The righteous, in, their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. That imagery of a horn lifted high. Think of maybe... Uh, a stag being hunted by the hounds and has been fleeing through the forest and up over the hills and eventually the barking fades away from its ears and there on the hill line is that stag with its mighty antlers raised and it stands silhouetted against the skyline in bravery and it has triumphed. Well, that imagery of a horn exalted is the sort of imagery that's being got at here, the triumph of God's people, the dishonored, honored. And you see the contrast. Look at the contrast in, in verse 10. In three times, verse 3, 6, and 9, their righteousness is forever. Their righteousness is remembered forever. Their righteousness endures forever. Forever, forever, forever marks the godly. What marks the wicked? They waste away. One translation puts it, they melt away. 
There they are. They're an ice cube on a July day in the Middle East. You come looking for it and it's melted and evaporated. Where's the righteous? There like the tree rooted by the river bearing fruit in season. And they come to nothing. They perish. What a contrast. And you see what an encouragement this is to us. Young people, do you see the encouragement this is to you to live God's ways? You start to become more and more in the image of God, everything that a human being was made to be. You become the sort of people that the people around us are attracted to, and yet, as we see here, they are vexed by us. They're both attracted and vexed at the same time. And they're frustrated as well. One writer had a wonderful line. He imagined the wicked saying, How can that dork be so valued? <laughs> you know, how can that nerd, how can that geek, how can that ordinary person enjoy such blessing? And they're, they're, they're frustrated. By, and here I am, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. No, 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 it's not that. Here it is. Here's the one who triumphs. It's the person who has put God first and who's related to God through Jesus Christ and who has seen that the way of God is better than the way the world offers. We live by faith and we put God first and we finish with everything. Or we live by putting us first and living for ourselves and we end with nothing. Godliness might be a devalued currency in 2021. But God has told us that we are not investing for nothing. But there will be a high yield on our investment. Both in this life. Look at the blessing. And in the life to come. So let us pursue Christ-likeness with every sinew and fiber of our being. What a privilege. What a miracle that God is working in us and what a blessing he brings to us. Amen. Let's stand for able as we come to God in prayer. Oh Lord God, what, what a magnificent privilege you have given to us. As we often say, we are dust that can breathe. We are mud that can have a heartbeat. And yet you have given us the privilege of knowing you and being made like you. And for that privilege to be realized, we marvel that God the Son had to become like us and go where we will not have to go, to the cross and to fury and to hell, so that we, instead of a cross, could have a crown, so that we, instead of a hell, could have heaven, so that we, instead of a tomb, could have a throne. And, O oh Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for him who came and resembled us so that we could resemble him. And, O oh Lord God, fill us with love for him and awe of him so that we will grow like him. Help us to be marked by righteousness more and more and graciousness and compassion and generosity and constancy and trustworthiness. 
for you have poured out such blessing on us, Lord. Help us to live this way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.